Good afternoon and welcome to today's CME activity. There is no commercial support. The speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interest. You will receive a SurveyMonkey link after today's activity. And if you're viewing online, the evaluation link will be listed in the description section of the video. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Marin Varghese. She attended medical school at Medical University of the Americas and did her residency at LSU Health System. Her fellowship was completed at Medical College of Georgia, and she joined NGHS Infectious Disease Department in October of 2018. She is the physician lead and the chairperson for the Antimicrobial Stewardship Committee. Join me in welcoming Dr. Varghese. Hello, everybody. Good afternoon. Um, thank you for having me. We will go ahead and get, um, get started on my presentation. I'm going to be talking about hepatic infections. It is such a broad topic. Um, I just really picked some high yield um, topics and uh, we'll go further into it in the presentation. So we're gonna review two common um, etiologies of liver abscesses. We're gonna talk about um, fungal etiology, specifically candida infection of liver infections, and then talk about hepatitis A, B, and C um, as uh, they contribute to viral hepatitis. There's a lot of pathogens that cause viral hepatitis. Um, really, each one of them, we could have one whole um, hour of presentation. So um, I just had to pick um, what I found to be some very interesting topics. So we'll get started with the case. Uh, number one is a 63-year-old female with a past medical history of hypertension, type 2 diabetes, with very poor glycemic control. She presented with fevers, loose stools, and loss of appetite for three weeks. In the ER, her temperature was 100.4, respiratory rate was 14, heart rate 110, and blood pressure was 100 over 72. Labs showed a white blood cell count of 15K, platelets of 532. So as part of the workup, CT abdomen pelvis was obtained, which showed multiple lesions in the liver concerning for abscess. So um, as it, it showed abscess, uh, IR was consulted and she had drainage of the abscess. Her blood cultures grew Klebsiella pneumoniae and this is what her abscess, or this is what um, well, came out of her, of her liver. And the abscess cultures grew Klebsiella pneumoniae as well. So this is pyogenic liver abscess, so bacterial liver abscess. So there are different routes of hepatic infection of bacterial infection, most commonly five of them, which are biliary tree uh, route, portal vein route, hepatic artery route, um, also direct extension from contiguous focus of infection, and also penetrating trauma. As far as the infection via uh, the route of biliary tree, cholangitis is the most common um, cause of pyogenic liver abscess. Usually multiple abscesses are found in anaerobic uh, 
bacteria are infrequent as far as etiology of, uh, of this particular um, route of infection. Um, underlying bilaria obstruction could be due to gallbladder stones, it could be due to a tumor, it could be uh, due to a stent that's contributing to the um, abscess. So as far as hepatic artery um, route of infection goes, any systemic bacteremia, um, including with um, complications of endocarditis, line sepsis can spread to the liver via this route. I'm sure that those who are on the floor have seen um, many patients, um, at least one patient, uh, with this kind of presentation. And uh, one thing as I was researching about, about this, what I found was that People, it, it's been reported that people who die of overwhelming sepsis or septic shock are found to have extensive microabscesses in their livers at autopsy. But big macroscopic liver abscess formations who, who, um, in those who recover from septic shock is very uncommon. Really underlines and highlights the capability of the liver to clear even large, large infections. The next route we'll talk about is the portal vein route. Um, portal venous system drains almost all of the abdominal viscera. So when you have infected thrombophlebitis of the portal vein, which is called pyelophlebitis, from diverticulitis, pancreatitis, inflammatory bowel disease, um, or any post-op infection. This can result in pyogenic liver abscess. Um, back in the day, untreated appendicitis was a, was a major cause um, of contributing to this route of infection, but it has uh, diminished a lot in recent years due to the introduction of pre-op, post-op antibiotics. And the next route is direct extension from contiguous focus of infection. So that would be from cholecystitis or uh, intra-abdominal abscesses, perinephric abscesses, et cetera. Trauma is, um, could also be a contributing factor as far as causing liver abscesses. So any penetrating trauma, um, even as subtle as ingestion of a toothpick can result in abscess formation. And it is thought that, you know, because if there is hepatic hematoma formation due to blunt trauma, there would be seeding of bacteria, uh, which leads to further infection. Um, hepatic destructions from diseases like sickle cell disease, tumor necrosis, um, or cirrhosis puts patients at, or people at very high risk of um, um, predisposing to, or put them at, uh, or predispose them to abscess formation. So as we talk about further predisposing factors are type two diabetes, cardiopulmonary disease, malignancy, cirrhosis, diabetes has um, a greater than threefold risk of develop, um, developing, especially um, uncontrolled type two diabetes or type one of developing um, pyogenic liver abscess. Hemochromatosis um, puts folks uh, at very high risk of uh, abscesses caused by Yersinia enterocolitica. Uh, this is something that um, may be a board question for, for the um, residents. As far as presentation goes, 
the classic triad of fever, right upper quadrant pain, and jaundice are seen in one to 10 um, patients who present with pyogenic abscesses. Fever is common, but a lot of nonspecific symptoms could also be there, like failure to thrive, malaise, fatigue, anorexia, weight loss. Um, vomiting, abdominal pain, etc. As far as duration of symptoms, really it varies from persons to persons as far as pyogenic liver abscess. And we talked about different routes of um, in hepatic infections. Um, and, and so it is very difficult to generalize specific uh, microbiology as far as what could be uh, causing the pyogenic liver abscess. Um, you know, a lot of times when people present with liver abscesses, they get antibiotics due to their presentation and by the time a specimen is obtained to be sent for cultures, they would have gotten um, several doses of antibiotics. So there's definitely um, a challenge as far as isolating bacteria, but uh, despite all of that, um, 80 to 90% of the um, of cases, we are able to have positive blood cultures. Anaerobes are present in 15 to 40% of abscesses, and 20 to 50% are polymicrobial. So as far as common pathogens go, so your gut bacteria, like your E. coli, Klebsiella, Strepanginosa, Centrococcus, Viridans group, Bacterioides are the most common. Uh, uncommon are Pseudomonas, um, Enterobacters, like Pro, uh, Citrobacters, Aurasia, um, Proteus, Staph aureus, or they are um, unlikely uh, or less common to cause pyogenic liver abscesses, uh, constituting one to 10% of the infections. Usually when pyogenic um, abscesses are associated with a biliary source, the, it tends to be a polymicrobial. Uh, cryptogenic abscesses where we can't really tell where it came from, um, most frequently they are monomicrobial. So these, uh, there's uh, the top picture is a patient who had a, a right um, hemihepatectomy um, for multiple abscesses caused by staph aureus. Um, you know, we've seen some cases like that here where someone comes in with staph aureus and then they have disseminated infection, have you know, splenic abscesses, hepatic abscesses, uh, endocarditis, et cetera. So the top picture is that. And the bottom one is a patient who had part of their liver taken out for um, D2 Klebsiella pneumoniae. And um, the top picture, you can see uh, rupture of the abscess as well. Treatment go, as far as treatment goes, um, most if not all pyogenic liver abscesses usually require drainage in addition to antibiotic therapy. Um, in today's world of medicine, we have ultrasound guided and CT guided uh, drainage procedures that can be done and if they fail, surgical interventions um, can be 
can be considered when, uh, when doing these drainages. It is important to understand the host and epidemiological factors, including travel, you know, know about travel histories and, and all that to and, and send for um, aerobic and aerobic cultures, fungi, mycobacteria, and also test for e-histolytica if, if you have uh, concerns for that risk factor. And the catheter is usually, usually left in place until the drainage becomes minimal. As soon as you have a diagnosis of pyogenic liver abscess, it is recommended to treat with empiric antibiotics. If possible, multiple blood cultures should be sent before starting antibiotics, and empiric antibiotic choices should be guided by suspected source of the abscess. But if you need help as far as what to choose, um, your beta-lactam, beta-lactamase inhibitors like Piptazo or Zosin, your carbapenems are always um, a, an option for empiric antibiotics depending on the host risk factor. Cephalosporin-based treatment would be um, your third or fourth generation cephalosporins and you want to add anaerobic coverage to that. And your fluoroquinolones, you want to start fluoroquinolone plus um, anaerobic coverage with metronidazole. Uh, you don't have to add metronidazole to piptazole or your carbapenems because they have excellent anaerobic coverage. So as far as treatment, general consensus is you treat parenterally um, IV antibiotics for two to, or IM antibiotics for two to three weeks, um, but Consensus is you treat for anywhere from four to six weeks. So you can consider completing the course after the first two to three weeks of IV antibiotics with, um, followed by PO antibiotics therapy. Um, obviously patients' clinical response and follow-up imaging should be, um, should be monitored to judge the duration of antibiotics. We see these patients, if we put them on IV antibiotics, we follow them in the outpatient setting and we actually uh, repeat CT, um, abdomen, pelvic CT of the liver uh, to ensure that there is resolution or near resolution of uh, the abscess before we stop antibiotics therapy. As far as abscess cavities go, there's, they usually resolve after therapy. Sometimes they can persist even after antibiotics therapy. Um, and if there's any recurrent symptoms like fevers or abdominal pain, then definitely repeat imaging should be done and possibly re-aspiration as well. So that concludes um, pyogenic liver abscess. Next one, uh, we'll talk about a patient, 27-year-old uh, male. He returned six months um, earlier from a six-month journey through Nepal and had spent six months in Senegal uh, two years previously. He was complaining of night and day sweats and lower thoracic pain for, for about seven days. He had a temp of 37.5 degrees Celsius. Blood col um, white blood cell count was 35,000 and alkaline phosphatase was 1.5 times the upper limit of normal. And CT, of abdomen pelvis revealed a single hypodense lesion in the right lobe of the liver consistent with a hepatic abscess. 
this is not the CT of the patient. So <laughs> we don't see that on the right side. It's because it's, I just found this on Google. And a, a, an abscess, the abscess was drained, uh, I don't know if you can see it very clearly on there, um, by, uh, by interventional radiology, which had an anchovy sauce-like um, like drainage. And that is your amoebic liver abscess. It's very, very rare to see in the United States. Uh, found there almost exclusively in travelers and immigrants. Uh, men, adult men, are um, at a tenfold higher risk for invasive disease, um, secondary to entamoeba histolytica than other, other population. I don't know the reason for that. So as far as the uh, uh, you know, pathophysiology goes, Cysts are, inject, uh, are ingested um, in fecally contaminated food or water. And once the cysts get into the intestines, excystation happens. So basically, the, the, the infected, the, inf the parasitic uh, infectious form of the, um, of the amoeba escapes out from the cyst. And they, and they go and migrate into the colon, and they adhere to the colon and multiply. And at high densities, what happens is these trophocytes get um, encystated. So they get the cyst formed um, on them again, and newly formed cysts are released into, um, into the stool to complete the life cycle. So it's a, let's see. Yeah, right here. So the cysts um, are ingested and mature cysts are ingested. They go to the colon and then from there, the cyst, um, there's excitation and then trophocytes are released and some of the trophocytes go and they infect, the, they go extraintestinally and infect other organs, liver, spleen, kidneys, etc. Um, and the others uh, get encystated um, and then they go out um, of, the, um, of the host. And, and they complete the life cycle. Most individuals, they experience asymptomatic infection. Um, approximately 10% of patients develop uh, symptomatic colitis when, this, uh, when these invade the colonic mucosa. Um, spread to the liver is via portal system, and it happens in less than 1% of cases. Um, and as far as presentation goes, presentations goes, uh, patients usually present within 8 to 20 weeks, so a median of about 12 weeks, although there's been reports of um, years lapsing um, between presentation and prior travel. We talked about this already. As far as complications, um, the most Concerning an important complication is abscess rupture. Um, depending on where the abscess is that ruptured, it may rupture into the peritoneum, it may rupture into the pleural space or pericardial space. 7% um, of the amoebic abscesses rupture into peritoneum and it can cause subphrenic abscess or peritonitis. 
70 to 20% will rupture into the pleural space, and that causes empyema. Rupturing into the pericardium is, um, is fatal due to purulent pericarditis um, with cardiac tamponade, and that usually happens on the left side. Um, other complications are these, could, uh, these uh, abscesses could get superinfected with bacteria. There could be thrombosis of um, hepatic veins and, um, and inferior vena cava. Treatment is pretty straightforward. Um, it actually uh, can almost always be treated with medical therapy alone. So metronidazole, high dose, 750 milligram, three times daily, it's typically given for seven to 10 days. Decrease in fever and abdominal pain are usually observed within three to five days of after starting therapy. Um, generally accepted that amoebic liver abscesses does not require drainage, but if a patient is coming and to the ER with this presentation, you see an abscess, that's gonna get drained <laughs> uh, before you know the etiology of the, of the abscess. But it's, um, it's generally uh, accepted to not drain them unless they are really, really large and there is a risk of rupture, especially into the pericardium. They are kind of left, left alone, or recommended, I should say. So that, concludes our uh, amoebic liver abscess. We'll move on to the next case. This is a 14-year-old male. He presented with epic stasis to a nosebleed and fatigue ongoing for several weeks. A further workup revealed that he um, had acute myeloid leukemia and he was started on chemotherapy and eventually discharged weeks later. Prior to the discharge, he had neutropenia for several days, which resulted even prior to discharge. So um, he was not neutropenic upon discharge. Two weeks after discharge, he presented back to the hospital with fevers, right upper quadrant pain, and he was noted to have hepatosplenomegaly on exam. And he was started on broad spectrum antibiotics, um, and fortunately, he remained with fevers. So this is the CAT scan. It shows multiple small, um, look like punched out uh, bullseye-like um, lesions uh, in both the liver and also the spleen, which shows with the white arrow. So that was chronic disseminated candidiasis or hepatosplenic candidiasis. Uh, it's quite rare. Um, it's, a, it's a very unique manifestation of candidiasis. It's almost exclusively um, seen in patients with acute leukemia who had prolonged um, neutropenia. And it usually develops during recovery from neutropenia after chemotherapy and it um, affects liver and spleen um, and sometimes even kidneys. The exact pathogenesis is not known, uh, but the thought is that candida species who are um, that are normal flora of the bowel, they invade and they seed into the hepatosplenic sino sinusoids from the portal splenic bloodstream following chemotherapy-induced mucosal damage in the GI tract. In these cases, fungal blood cultures, usually liver biopsy cultures, are also um, negative, are, are generally negative. 
usually present, like I mentioned, within two weeks of neutrophil recovery. Um, it's rare that the presentation is delayed uh, for several months. Uh, and um, as mentioned before, most common clinical feature is that uh, the fevers fail to respond to broad-spectrum antibacterial therapy. And additional symptoms may be nausea, vomiting, anorexia, hepatosplenomegaly, and hepatosplenomegaly may also be seen. CT scans, um, they detect hepatosplenic candidiasis rarely before bone marrow reconstitution or ANC um, recovery. Lesion enhancement, um, it's usually like a bullseye or a punched out lesion and that's uh, seen during the arterial phase of the CAT scan. And let's right here, multiple punched out lesions. It's seen in the liver, spleen, and again, in the kidneys as well. As far as treatment goes, um, current recommendation is first-line therapies are echinocandin, so your mycofungin, um, caspofungin, or liposomal amphotericin B. Um, that's the first-line therapy. Uh, treatment really, is quite prolonged, three to six months. And that concludes our quick overview of um, um, hepatosplenic um, candidiasis. So as far as the viral hepatitis goes, we're gonna concentrate mostly on A, B, and C. I'm not gonna dwell too much into treatments, but just a quick overview, since we are talking about hepatic infections. Maybe sometime um, later in the future, I can talk more about viral hepatitis. It's a very broad topic. So we'll start off with hepatitis A. Um, fecal oral route is the transmission and is transmitted through close person-to-person -person contact with an infected person, um, sexual contact with an infected person, um, and ingestion of contaminated food or water. Um, although viremia occurs early in, in the infection, bloodborne transmission is very, very uncommon. Incubation period is 15 to 50 days, about a month, 28 days on average. And potential for a chronic infection after an acute infection is, is uh, virtually none. And most people with acute disease recover with no lasting liver damage. Death is very uncommon unless there's, um, there's you know, unless it's among older patients or those with underlying liver disease. Uh, it is actually heat more heat stable than, uh, than most RNA viruses. So for complete inactivation, uh, food has to be heated for more than 85 degrees Celsius for at least one minute. The treatment is supportive. Um, and as far as vaccines go, children need two doses of hepatitis A vaccine. Um, uh, first dose between 12 to through 23 months of age and the second dose six months after that. Um, there's you know, other uh, times when vaccines can be given, especially in pregnant patients and also those who are immune compromised as well, who have not gotten hepatitis A vaccine in the past. Interestingly, when I first moved to United States, I, um, we did not bring my vaccination history. You know, over there you get all the vaccines when you're young and when we came here, 
we didn't know that we had to bring all the vaccination um, report. So at the age of 14, I had to get all the vaccines all over again, and that included the hepatitis A and also the polio as well. That was fun. <laughs> Just a little fun stuff. Um, <laughs> got double vaccinated with hepatitis A. Um, so next we'll move on to hepatitis B. Transmission is percutaneous mucosal or um, from non-intact skin exposure to infectious blood, semen, and other body fluids. It's concentrated mostly, um, most highly in blood. So percutaneous exposure is an efficient mode of transmission. It's transmitted primarily through birth um, uh, via an infected mother, sexual contact with an infected person, sharing contaminated needles, uh, syringes, or um, other injection drug equipment, less commonly through uh, needle stakes, other sharp instrument injuries, organ transplantation, dialysis, and interpersonal contact through sharing items such as razors or toothbrushes, or contact with open source of an in infected person. Okay, so this is uh, serological markers that we use to test for hepatitis B. I wanted to put the hepatitis B virus structure there so you can see the part of the virus is the surface antigen, E antigen, core antigen, and um, the polymerase as well. So when there's the antigens present, um, our body will try to make antibodies to uh, the virus. So first, hepatitis uh, B surface antigen. That's the hallmark of infection is positive very early in the phase of acute infection and it persists for the um, duration of the chronic infection. You have your hepatitis B core antibody and that's also observed during acute infection as well. Sometimes it can be used to differentiate between acute and chronic hepatitis B infection. And if, there's any, if there is a time of um, severe exacerbation of a chronic infection, uh, Hep B core antibody can become positive. Uh, the total um, hepatitis B core, core antibodies, it develops three months after infection, usually indicates resolved infection. You have your hepatitis E antigen, which is a viral protein, that's associated with high viral load and high infectivity. And the hepatitis B E antibody usually indicates a decreasing viral load, hepatitis B viral load, um, but it may be present in what we call immune controlled and immune escape phases. So chronic hepatitis B has multiple, multiple phases and immune escape phase is when the hepatitis B escapes the immune control and begins to replicate. And immune control is the host immunity is actually strong and, um, and can control the viral load. These are phases of chronic hepatitis B infections. You have your surface antibody, hepatitis B surface antibody, which are neutralizing antibody that confers protection from infection. So if, you, if you're recovering from an acute infection 
or immunity from vaccination, then the hepatitis um, B surface antibody will be positive. Um, not the case with core antibody. Um, that's the difference. In with surface antibody, uh, the that you see you see that with immunity from vaccination as well, but not core antibody. That's from um, infection itself, recovering from infection. So um, just really what we just talked about, uh, you can uh, detect hepatitis B viral DNA quite early, and then you'll start seeing the surface antigen uh, come up, then the E antigen, once the, and then you know, natural phases, they'll go down, and then in response to that, your body will produce surface antibody and also the E antibody as well. Um, and uh, the core antibody develops um, earlier than the surface and the E antibodies. Mostly acute hepatitis B is asymptomatic, but if symptoms do occur, they begin an average of 90 days, it's anywhere from 60 to 150 days after exposure to hepatitis B virus. As I said, not all patients, not all people with acute hepatitis B infection have symptoms. It can, the symptoms can range from being asymptomatic or mild disease, and very rarely fulminant hepatitis. So fever could be a present, um, fatigue, loss of appetite, very nonspecific abdominal symptoms, nausea, vomiting, dark urine, and um, joint pain, jaundice, etc. So what's the potential for, um, for, for a chronic infection after an acute infection? 90% of infants who have acute infection at birth will, will develop chronic infection. 25 to 50% of children newly infected at age one to five will develop chronic infection. 5% of people who are infected as adults develop chronic infection. And um, as far as extra hepatic manifestations of hepatitis B, um, polyarteritis nodosa has been reported, glomerulonephritis, palpable purpura, and, and there are others as well. Uh, and, and I said, as I said before, most people with acute illness recover with no lasting liver damage. Acute illness is very rarely fatal. Um, 15 to 25% of people with chronic uh, infection will develop liver disease, chronic liver disease, including cirrhosis, liver failure, or unfortunately malignancy. Um, hepatitis B is a non-cytopathic virus, so it doesn't directly attack the hepatocytes in your liver. Um, the uh, experts believe that pathogenesis of liver injury after hepatitis B infection is due to the immune-mediated events as a response to hepatitis B. As far as screening for hepatitis B, um, all adults aged 18 years or older um, should be screened at least once during their lifetime. Um, infants who are born to pregnant people who are at risk of hepatitis B should be screened and um, all pregnant people should be screened for hepatitis B antigen during each pregnancy, preferably during the first trimester, regardless of vaccination status or history of testing that's per CDC.
So we, uh, we looked at you know, the antibodies and ad antigen and the structure of, um, of hepatitis B virus. In, um, so if you want to check for acute infection, uh, surface antigen and your core IgM antibody should be tested. And for chronic infection, surface antigen and um, hep B surface antibody and total core antibody can be tested. As far as goals of treatment goes, um, it's, we're not aiming for, it can be, cannot be cured. Um, the goal is to reduce the risk of end-stage liver disease um, and also cancer by suppressing the hep B virus, um, you know, uh, trying to clear hep B surface antigen, decrease inflammation in the liver, and also obviously reduce transmission as well. Um, several several um, treatment modalities are available, peg interferon, tenofovir, so your TDF, uh, new t uh, tenofovir regimen of just T AF and also in Tecavir as well. All right, we'll move on to hepatitis C, which is the last uh, few slides of my presentation. Um, transmission is via direct percutaneous exposure to infectious blood. Mucose, mucous membrane exposures to blood can also result in transmission, although this route is less efficient. It's primarily uh, transmitted through sharing contaminated needles, syringes, or other equipment uh, to inject drugs, less commonly through birth um, uh, to an infected mother, sexual contact with an infected person, unregulated tattooing, and needle sticks or other sharp instrument injuries. Uh, hep C screening is um, recommended at least once in lifetime for all adults aged 18 years or older, except um, in prevalence of hep C, where prevalence of hep C is less than 0.1%. It's uh, recommended for all pregnant women during each pregnancy. And periodic testing should be offered to people who have um, who are involved in activities or have exposures or conditions um, that uh, put them at high risk of acquiring hepatitis C. Annual testing is recommended in those who inject drugs, uh, males who have sex with males, uh, males who have sex with males um, who are on pre-exposure prophylaxis. Screening for hepatitis C, um, hepatitis C antibody has more than 99% sensitivity. False negatives are sometimes possible. That's usually an early disease, so if it's been less than 70 days since exposure or acquisition, if they're on dialysis, if they're on HIV treatment, um, then false negatives could be possible. Uh, so you want to do a confirmation if, uh, if you have high suspicion, whether it's false positive or false negative. Um, so you want to do a hepatitis C RNA uh, or hepatitis C viral load. After a successful course of treatment of hepatitis C, the hepatitis C antibody remains detectable. So if you want to see if the patient has active hepatitis C infection, you want to order a hepatitis C, uh, C RNA, hep C RNA or hep C viral load. And moving on to uh, symptoms, acute hep C infections are usually asymptomatic. Most do not lead to a life-threatening disease. 
uh, about 30% of infected persons spontaneously clear the virus within six months of infection without any treatment. The remaining 70% will develop chronic hep C infection. Uh, those who have chronic hep C infection, cirrhosis, um, the risk of cirrhosis is anywhere from 15 to 30% of uh, people within 20 years. And, um, you know, there's guidelines for hep C uh, treatment, hcvguidelines.org. If you haven't visited, uh, it's, it's a great tool. Um, they have, you know, it's, it's, it's very user-friendly. You can go and look at um, what, what genotype it is, what subtype genotype it is, and what the recommended treatment is, what the recommendation is as far as uh, screening for malignancy, et cetera. So it's a great tool and um, actually use this uh, website when I am treating hepatitis, um, patients who have chronic hepatitis C. Hi, what are the symptoms of hepatitis E? Hepatitis E? Yeah, is that is a... Mostly was, seen in Yeah, pregnant. I had a question about that in a exam. I, no, I, I, I don't, I'm not really well versed in hepatitis E, so I don't want to, to speak, I, but I, but is that the one that's mostly seen in pregnant patients who can cause, that can cause fulminant liver failure? So. Yeah. I don't, I don't know much about hepatitis E since we don't see it that often, so I, I don't want to say something wrong since there's so many people here, but I, can, I, I believe that it is the one that causes fulminant liver failure in pregnant folks. And with hepatitis D, it is, um, since you brought up hepatitis C, hep D is a virus that is unable to replicate on its own and usually has to piggyback with hepatitis B. Superinfection and concomitant infections are seen with hepatitis uh, B, with the hepatitis uh, D as well. Um, but hepatitis E, I only know about pregnant patients, I, so I can't say more. So we do have medical librarians located at Gainesville and Brazelton. So they can help you with some searching if you have specific questions about it. Um, so reach out to them as well. We have another question over here. Thanks for the presentation. I'm just curious, uh, when we have patients in clinic that test positive for hepatitis C, um, is it more appropriate to send them to GI or infectious disease or both? I, I'm always confused. That, that's a very good, very good um, question. So as far as treatment goes, um, uh, you know, we are very capable of treating hepatitis C in our office. Uh, the thing is, depending on the stage of the infection and chronicity of the infection and the complication of the infection, these folks may need um, malignancy screening, cancer screening, especially if, you know, they have fibrosis, cirrhosis, etc. So with treatment, I also refer them to gastroenterology as well because they do need periodic screening. So, um, you know, so, but sometimes it, it's, a, it's a bit difficult, especially when um, we are dealing with certain um, insurance payers, um, you know. So I would recommend both if you're able. Otherwise, uh, GI is very capable of treating 
and also surveillance as well. I only send them to GI for surveillance purposes. We have one more here in person. Thank you, Dr. Vargas. I have a question mainly for outpatient. Uh, we get a lot of patients who need to get, especially the elderly patients, need to get screened for or give, given the hepatitis B vaccine, um, the three doses basically. What's your opinion in terms of those patients who are reluctant about getting the vaccine? Do we just check a hepatitis B surface antibody, for example, tighter, or just try to convince them further to get the, the full vaccine at the age of like yeah, definitely, you know, getting the vaccine would be the most most appropriate. But if you're not, you know, if they are not willing to, I think it's important to ask the risk factors as well, right? Like if folks, you know, if this is 80 year old grandpa and he's just living at home and just don't want to get stuck, then you just have to really evaluate the risk factors and see if he is at risk of getting hepatitis B. And if he is not, then you know doing labs and surveillance may be may be appropriate. Um, but if it is somebody who is young and who has these risk factors, then uh, certainly we want to do what we can to try to um, immunize them. If they are not able to, then or if they don't want to, then surveillance with with labs would be most appropriate. As long as they understand the risk of chronic hepatitis B, um, you know, which is you know that also includes malignancy as well. We did have a couple of questions online. So there are vaccines for hepatitis A and B as in boy. Will there ever be a vaccine for hepatitis C? That's a really, really good question. I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but you know, hepatitis C is the success rate as far as uh, curing the infection is really, really high with these agents. Like, you know, we're talking about one pill once a day that you take anywhere from eight to 12 weeks and, and curing um, the infections. But, you know, I think it would be really good to have a vaccine, but um, uh, I, I don't, I'm not an expert in it to really comment much about it, but I haven't heard anything in the works as far as a hepatitis C vaccine. Even after you cure these hepatitis C infections, some of them are at risk of developing malignancies and cirrhosis and all that. So um, I think it would be neat to have it, but I don't know much about it. Okay, thank you. And then um, one more here. You may have already touched on this, but can you just go over what to do for hepatitis B as in boy and C exposures, basically want to emphasize no post-exposure prophylaxis for hepatitis C and for B. It is based on immune status and if not immune, will need immunoglobulin and need to start Yes, yes. I, didn't, I didn't touch on immunoglobulins and also, also treatment, um, but yes, both of them are available. Immunoglobulins, you know, that's, that's for our immediate, uh, immediate use. It doesn't confer long-term immunity um, like vaccines do. Uh, so if, uh, if somebody is not, you know, if found to not be immune, I, I believe immunoglobulins are, are recommended. But I didn't go further into the, the treatment for immunoglobulins, as far as immunoglobulins or treatment goes, because it's kind of a quite broad topic, and if I were to touch on it, then there would be 
much more things that I have to do that kind of goes beyond the scope of this current presentation. But hopefully um, sometime the next few months I can do a dedicated presentation on um, viral hepatitis, and concentrating on hep A or hep B and, and hep C. Okay, excellent. And then um, one more here. What is the logic of giving hepatitis B as in boy vaccines at birth, given that it is primarily sexually transmitted or blood organ transmitted? What, uh, why can't they wait? I don't know the answer to that. Yes, the first dose is recommended uh, quite quite early, so I don't know the answer to that. Those are all very very good questions. I am impressed by my my uh, my colleagues. Thank you. All.